Good morning. Our scripture reading this morning is from 1 John 1, 5 through chapter 2, verse 2. It can be found on page 1021 in your Black Pew Bible. 1 John 1, 5 through 2, 2. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you, that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin, but if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Good morning. Welcome. My name is Mark, and I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, would you all pray with me quickly? Heavenly Father, would you be pleased by what we do this morning? Would you open our hearts to receive your word by the power of your Holy Spirit? Would you lead us and guide us? Christ, you died to cleanse us. You are the propitiation for our sins. We don't have to be slave to our sins any longer. I ask, Lord, would you give us freedom this morning from sin? Would you give us freedom this morning from darkness? Would you help us to walk in the light? Would you give us the grace we need to do it and the courage that we need to do it? Because fellowship with you is worth it. So fill our hearts with faith, confidence in you, and transform us this morning, I pray, in Jesus' name. Amen. If, if you're just joining our... Um, series. We're walking through the letters of John, and right now we're walking through 1 John, and in the weeks and months to come, we'll eventually hit 2 John and 3 John. And I included those letters because they share themes with this letter, and they also tend to kind of fall by the wayside. Those books are really small, and they tend to get neglected, especially if you make a habit of preaching series that are verse by verse through books of the Bible. I've never heard anybody launch a series in Second John. Um, so we're going to include them here because they have similar or they share themes with this letter, and it makes a lot of sense to just preach all three of them together. We're calling this series Communion. Because throughout the letters of John, we encounter instructions and we encounter exhortations related to our fellowship with God 
And we see instructions and exhortations related to our interpersonal fellowship with one another. The church is the communion of the saints. In Ephesians chapter 2, we're called the members of God's family. We're called the very household of God. And we want to be the kind of household that fosters and cultivates joyful, honest, sincere, wholehearted, genuine, authentic Christian fellowship. And by authentic, I mean things like not lying to each other and not lying to ourselves. I mean being true. I mean doing the truth, practicing the truth, like this text says, like we'll see today. By authentic, I don't mean a lack of discipline. I don't mean a lack of planning or a lack of structure. I mean honesty and integrity before God and then with each other. There's a common metaphor There's a common motif that shows up throughout the scriptures, and it's also employed by great authors in great literature like the Lord of the Rings, and it's also falsely appropriated by things like cults and charlatans and liars. And the metaphor that I'm talking about is the dichotomy between darkness and light. The forces of darkness against the forces of light. The kingdom of darkness versus the kingdom of light. People popularize stories of angels and demons, good and evil, light and darkness. But we read today that this idea isn't merely for fantasy novels and bad movies. We open today with an assertion that God, the true God, is light. And in him is no darkness at all, no darkness whatsoever, not even a hint of darkness. And in 2 Corinthians, we read in eleven fourteen, it says that Satan himself disguises himself as an angel of light. But in reality, he was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character for he's a liar and the father of lies. So he's the father of lies which is dark, but he disguises himself as an angel of light. This battle between light and darkness is real. It's real, but it's not even. The battle is real, but God's victory has already been secured. The jury's not out on this. The jury is in, and God is triumphant. Why did Jesus come? One answer to that question is to destroy the works of the devil. And Jesus doesn't quit, and Jesus does not do a job halfway. It isn't complete or, or um, full yet, but it's guaranteed. Jesus is Lord now, and the devil is a cornered animal. Now, I'm, I'm going to break this morning's sermon into four movements because uh, the ground that we have to cover is quite a bit. And my goal isn't to preach everything from this section of Scripture, but to preach faithfully something from this section of Scripture. And as I've labored in this text, I want to preach it in such a way that we can reach it, that we can get a hold of it, so that we can grab it. I want to put it on the right shelf for us, the right height, because I want us to get our arms around it and take it down and look at it and behold it and integrate it into our lives. And so I've broken up this text into four movements, and they go like this. Number one, I want us to reckon with a declaration. 
I want us to reckon with a declaration. Number two, I want us to draw out an exhortation. Number three, I want us to understand an application. And number four, I want us to receive the consolation that's in this text. So first, I want you and I want myself to reckon with a declaration. This comes from verse five. It says, this is the message that we have heard and that we proclaim to you, that God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. God is light. This is how, this is how the gospel functions. It's an announcement. It's a, a declaration. It is declarative. The gospel is news and it's good news. And one of the reasons that it's good news is because it's true news. Jesus calls himself the truth. And here, John says, God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. God is light. That's talking about God being true and God's ethical purity, God's holiness. Listen to what John Stott says about this verse. He says, quote, Of the statements about the essential being of God, none is more comprehensive than God is light. It is his nature to reveal himself as it is the property of light to shine. And the revelation is of perfect purity and unutterable majesty. Perfect purity and unutterable majesty. In our our post-enlightenment, post-modern era, we tend to think that we possess in ourselves some sort of measurement of truth. We think that we can have some kind of truth measuring stick that we take out of the pocket of our feelings and the pocket of our own sensibilities and we hold it up against God and try to decide whether or not he lines up. We think that we can hold up a measurement that we possess in ourselves. We think we can hold it up against the gospel, and that's how we try to test it. And then we think we, we, we can evaluate and analyze the truth claims of God himself, and we put him to the test, and we decide if we resonate with what he's saying to us. And then once we've decided what we think, we tell him that if he can convince us, that we'll do him a favor and we'll follow him. And so God says things in the word like, thou shalt not covet your neighbor's wife. And we say things like, oh, that doesn't really feel true to me. Or God sets forth a moral standard for holiness. Or God talks about our money or our parenting or our behavior. And when it gets hard, or when it costs us something, we say things like, is that really true? Because it doesn't feel true. And if it doesn't feel true, I don't really care about it being true. Nowadays, we don't even make reasoned arguments for our positions. The phrase, it doesn't feel true, has become an entire argument to itself. No premises or conclusions are necessary anymore. And why am I saying this? What's the point? The point is, our first step this morning is to reckon with a declaration made to us. The news has come. The message is proclaimed. The announcement's been made. God is light. He's light. Your kids are not the light. 
Your, your diet is not the light. Your politicians or your favorite bloggers are not the light. God is. This is God's self-disclosure to us, and we only need reckon with it or perish. Psalm 2 says, kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. But Psalm 2 also says, blessed are all of those who take refuge in him. So God, God comforts and God scorches. He shines with glory, but he's also a consuming fire. He's blindingly radiant and nothing unclean can come into his presence. God's light is his holiness, his truth, his ethical purity, his burning, brilliant glory. And the Gospel of John chapter 3 verse 19 says that this is the judgment. This is the judgment. The light has come into the world and the people loved darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his work should be exposed. God is light and he has revealed himself. God is light and he has sent his son so that we could live in fellowship with him. God is light and he does expose our works of darkness. God is light and he does burn up the wicked like chaff. God is light and he reveals truth and he gives vision to the righteous. God is light and the light is the life of men. God is light. And he is life to men and women who bow down, who run from sin, who turn to him, who humble themselves and reject sin and wickedness and embrace him. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world and the world didn't receive him. This is the declaration that we must reckon with because not receiving him has consequences. If we run from the light, or if we squeeze our eyes shut and pretend like it's not there, or if we call the light darkness, there's real consequences to that. So you are not the light. I am not the light. We are not uncorrupted and incorruptible like God is. We're sinful and we're broken people. We have remaining sin. We have our flesh that works to tempt us and overtake us and make us slaves to sin again. And this is why our first step this morning is to reckon with this reality. That God's light. And as many as received him, he, he makes them children of God. This is the God whom we have fellowship with. And fellowship with God is where true joy resides. We're writing, we're writing that our joy may be full and that your joy may be full. God is light. We have fellowship with the Father and the Son. We have fellowship with the light as we walk in the light. Verse 6 says, if we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and we do not practice the truth. And the exhortation is conspicuous. The exhortation here is obvious. Walk in the light. The exhortation this morning is don't lie. Don't lie and say you have fellowship with God while you're walking in darkness. The implied exhortation is to walk in the light. Why? Because that's where fellowship with God is. And where 
where the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. So, so before I move forward, I want to stop for a minute in, 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 an effort, in an effort to walk in the light. I want us to make a couple observations about the darkness before we move forward. Walking in darkness is walking in conscious, unrepentant sin. And then number two is there are no mirrors in the dark. Second Corinthians 6 says, what fellowship has light with darkness? And the answer is none. God is light, and in him there's no darkness at all. So we might ask ourselves, does that mean when I fall, when I struggle, when I mess up, when I commit discreet acts of sin, am I walking in darkness in that moment? Am I, in the moment that I sin, walking in darkness? And the answer to that question is yes and no. Yes and no. Walking in darkness is walking in sin. It isn't sinning and then confessing, asking for forgiveness and turning away from your sin and back to God honestly, honestly. That's not what walking in darkness means. That's one way to encounter darkness and turn away so that you can walk in the light. However, if you find yourself with conscious sin in your life that you're embracing, if you've abandoned the, the gathering of Christian community or you've isolated yourself so that you can keep sinning without feeling bad about it, if you've isolated yourself so that you can hide angry outbursts at your children or your wife from your friends so that, so that they don't see it and they can't correct you, if you're defensive and you're angry with your children, instead of being humble and asking forgiveness, you bow up and double down and separate yourself from them. When you feel the fellowship crack, you just pull yourself away. Or that might not be you. Maybe you distance yourself in a defensive posture because you, man, you like the sin in your life just the way it is. You don't want anyone to bring it into the light. You don't want someone to bring with them the light of the knowledge of the glory of God, that they would shine on your evil deeds. If that's you, if you're embracing sin consciously, then you are walking in darkness. And your fellowship with God is either damaged in that moment, or it might be a total lie. You might be self-deceived. So I don't want to be vague in this moment for our church there are people in this room flirting with darkness right now. There are people in this room who sense the kind of good sting of conviction from the Holy Spirit in their hearts right now about something specific in their lives and they're resisting it. There are folks in this room who are flirting with the thought of ignoring something or running from the light or burying sin or hiding sin, and that is flirting with the darkness. Men love darkness because their deeds are evil. They don't want anybody to shine any light on what they're doing. They don't want it to be seen. And in the darkness, nobody's looking. No one's seeing anything for what it is. And this brings me to my second point about the darkness. We love the dark because you can't see anything. We love the dark because you can't see anything. If you hold up a mirror to someone in the dark, it doesn't do any good. 
Mirrors don't work in the dark. Feedback doesn't work in the dark. Explanations and self-awareness and advice doesn't work in the dark. You have to come into the light. And we stay in the dark so we can keep deceiving ourselves. That's the appeal. No one can correct you or rebuke you in the dark. We can just be walking around with all kinds of grime and gunk and mud all over our face and we don't even know and whoever we're with down there can't even tell us. And we lie to ourselves and we tell ourselves that everything's fine. We get in dark patterns of relating to one another. We sin or we keep sinning even though we know it's wrong or we suspect that we're convicted but we don't want to change. And that's why we're willing to allow someone else's sin because we don't want to change our own and we don't want to face our own sin. I might get in an argument with my wife. We both might be acting sinfully and selfishly and angry, but, but instead of confessing in that moment, I can separate because the idea of seeing and acknowledging her sin means I have to see and acknowledge my own sin too. And there are no mirrors in the dark. We could be playing in the mud or wallowing in filth or whatever, and we don't have to acknowledge it. We don't have to name it or face it. And most importantly to us in that moment might be we don't have to lose it. We don't have to give it up. We can keep it. But we can't keep our sin and keep fellowship and joy at the same time. We tend to have little pet sins in our lives that we don't want to let go of. And in this situation, everybody loses. And the only way forward is to come back to the light, come back to God. The exhortation is to walk in the light as he is in the light so that we can have fellowship with him. And the text says, so that we can have fellowship with one another. And that happens when we confess our sin. That's how you walk in the light. If you want to walk in the light, if you want to reject the options for living in the darkness, that means you shine light on your sin. It means you, you bring it up. You confess it. And it's at this moment, I want us to understand the application. Movement number three is for us to confess, confess our sins. The word for confession means basically to say the same. It means to say the same. And what that means is God says one thing is sin and you don't call it something else. You call it what God calls it. You say the same. And this is why we like the dark. If we can't see our sin, then we can't call it anything. Our text says in verse 9, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But it also says, verse 8, if we, if we say we have no sin, then we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. In verse 10, if we say we have not sinned, we make God to be a liar and God's word isn't in us. These verses highlight for us the grave importance of Christian integrity. Do we say about ourselves the same thing that God says about us? Do we agree with God that our actions can be sinful, our postures, our behaviors, our attitudes can be sinful, or they can be righteous? Do we sweep sin under the rug and act like it didn't happen? Do we overlook someone else's sin so that we can feel less guilty about our own sin? Do we deceive ourselves and tell ourselves that we haven't sinned? Let me, let me help all of us 
including myself, with, with this little test. In your life, in your life, whose sin bothers you the most? And I don't mean like out of your group of friends, who's the most annoying? And I don't mean in your family, which person's sin bothers you the most? I mean other people's sin or your own sin. One of the keys to Christian fellowship is the practice and the impulse to give more weight in your own life to your own sin than worry a bunch about somebody else's. Honest and joyful fellowship with one another requires requires you to be more bothered about yourself and your own sin and less about your husband's less about your wives, less about your kids, less about your roommates, less about your coworkers' sin. Now, I'm not saying that we ignore, ignore other people's sin, but I want us to ask ourselves today, whose sin bothers us the most? Whose sin bugs you the most? Your own? Or do you have a face in mind? Most commentators suggest that this text is also addressing specific claims made by specific people who have left the community of faith here. People who are claiming something along the lines of, um, I'm sinless since my conversion, or since this deep spiritual experience that I had now, I don't sin any longer. Now, the, the scholars I read, they couldn't prove this, but for our purposes, it's not really necessary to speculate. The truth is, is that Christians sin even after they've been saved. After they've been converted, after they've been made regenerate by the power of the Spirit of God, even then, we still sin, and we will battle with sin for the rest of our lives, and we'll repent of sin for the rest of our lives. The saying is true. All of a Christian's life is one of repentance, and the Scriptures make this clear throughout. Now, we want to take the opportunity we want to take the opportunity that the text provides us to own our own sin, right? To pay attention to our own integrity. We want to ask ourselves questions like, are we lying to ourselves about something, about a sin in our lives? Are we rationalizing something when we should be repenting of it? Are we justifying something when we should be running away from it? Or are we defensive or deceptive or manipulative? Because you don't have to be committing flagrant sin to be living in the dark. You don't have to. We can hide our sin in other kinds of darkness. We can pretend to have noble motives when our motives are selfish or even malicious. Do you sin in the dark by subtle manipulation? Manipulation of your children or do you have motives that are selfish and malicious? Do you try to manipulate your boss or your friends? That's hiding, hiding motives and flirting with darkness also. When the truth is, when the, when the truth is that we're angry or jealous or competitive, and then we drape something over it to pretty it up, when we decorate things like envy and jealousy with nice-sounding words or flattery, that's darkness too. We don't, we don't just hide acts of sin. We hide attitudes. We lie. We lie about bitterness and resentment. We hide malice. And in that moment, 
we're sacrificing our own integrity. Think of, think of your, for a second, think of your integrity like a bridge. And when you pretend good motives and lie and hide sinful ones, it's like rust to your integrity. It's like decay and corrosion to the bridge of your integrity. And eventually it will come down and it'll hurt people. And we hide our sin and we call it by different names in an effort to conceal it and avoid being exposed. But but verse 9 says, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. The structure of this, uh, of the admonition this morning is not, if you get all of this right, God will finally love you. It's, if you, if you will let go of this nonsense, you are invited into fellowship with the living God. Our little plans and tricks and schemes just don't work. They don't do for us what they think they do. Our strategies for concealing things don't get us what we want. To tell a lie to, to tell a lie, you have to first believe a lie. What's required here is not that you never miss a sin in your life, but that you confess honestly. If you have a heart to see and confess the sin that you've been convicted of or made aware of, maybe by someone else in your life, if you have a heart to confess, whenever that moment arrives, that is living in the light. That is living in the light. We all sin, and I hate, like I don't want to be the one to break it to you, but like you sin way more than you know. Way more than you could ever know. You actually couldn't possibly apologize and repent for every single one of them. And the good news is you don't, you don't have to. That's not what God's saying here. He's not saying you have to go dig up every single one. What he is saying is when they show up, you repent and you confess and you live in the light and and he cleanses you from all unrighteousness. We all sin way more than we know. And the blood of Christ cleanses us of it all. He, he takes care of those spots that you, you don't know about. You don't have to spend your days in agony over those. But, but denying the doctrine of sin is calling God a liar. And, and for this audience, for John's audience, there really isn't anything worse you could do. There's not much more sacrilegious than telling this God that he's a liar or accusing him of lying. See, you and I sin. We will sin. We won't see every sin. You can't name or repent of every single sin in your life, but we but we have to repent of the ones that we know about if we want to live in the light. And we want to live in the light because that's where fellowship with God is. And we want fellowship with God because that's where joy is. If you want to live in the light where God dwells in fellowship with him, that's where true joy is found. We talked about that last week. Confess your sin and be forgiven and cleansed of all unrighteousness. John wants his readers to know that. He wants his readers to avoid sin and he wants them to handle their sin in a way that protects and preserves their fellowship with each other and their fellowship with God. John takes a sentence to be explicit about another goal that he has in this letter when he says, little children, I write these things to you that you may not sin. 
But if you do sin, you have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not only for our sins, the sins of the whole world. And this brings me around the corner to my concluding movement this morning, and that is receive the consolation, which is Christ. First, John calls his audience, my little children. That term is, is, is um, dripping with affection and pastoral care. John is this like uh, heartfelt pastor, shepherd throughout this book. And he's going to deal with what he has heard um, is being, is stirring amongst these people. So there's been lies, there's been teaching that they shouldn't be believing. And he's going to deal with what they did. But one thing that he does that's different than some of the other letters in the New Testament is he doesn't spend as much time saying what they did wrong as he does telling the actual believers in this instant, what's in this instance, what to do about it. Like he's more worried about their heart and how they're interacting with it than he is about like uh, bulleting all the places that they they were false. My little children, my little children, he says, I'm writing so that you don't sin. I'm telling you God is light. And if you want fellowship with the light, stay away from the darkness. Fellowship with the light is where true joy is, where delight and happiness are found. So take that joy, take that fellowship with God instead of nasty, fleeting, infected pleasures of sin. And if you do sin, I've got good news for you. Christ is your advocate and he is your propitiation. This is how Christ is our consolation. This is how he is our comfort. This is how he is our solace, our relief, our help. In this verse, Christ is talked about as a help to us the same way with the same word that Jesus uses when he says that the Holy Spirit, a helper, will come to us. When a Christian is converted, Sin's pleasures start to lose their luster. As a believer walks in holiness, their love for God increases, their joy and fellowship with God increases, and their disdain for sin increases. Sometimes this can lead a Christian to overwhelming conviction. Sometimes this can bog them down with sorrow over their sin. Sometimes the believer is motivated by dread over their sin enough to cry out with the Apostle Paul, O oh, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? And sometimes believers get sunk underneath the weight of that conviction and gloom. And for the sinner bogged down with the besetting sin in, their, in your life, maybe bogged down with a sin that seems to keep its fangs stuck in you, this verse is for you. You have Jesus as your Lord, you have Jesus as your Savior, and you have Jesus as your advocate, your intercessor. He intercedes for you. The book of Hebrews tells us that Christ is our priest forever forever. He doesn't die like Old Testament priests died. He's able to save to the uttermost those who draw near since he always lives to make intercession for them. The intercession, his advocacy here for us is constant and ongoing. The writer of Hebrews, again, he says, for it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, 
unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins, and then for the sins of the people, since he, since he did this once for all, when he offered up himself. The point is, you like um, sorrowful, bogged down sinner, you have Christ as your intercessor. You have him as your intercessor and you have him as your propitiation. Christ offered up himself as a propitiation for our sins and not only for ours, but for the sins of the whole world. That is our consolation. In our day, some traditions are leaving behind the doctrinal reality of propitiation. But this word explains that the wrath of God that we deserved was redirected from us and set toward Jesus on the cross. At the cross, our ledger of debt is wiped clean. It is canceled. We're forgiven, and the punishment for sin is meted out on Jesus Christ himself. This is what the word means. The wrath of God didn't disappear. It was directed at Jesus. The wrath of God didn't evaporate. It was unleashed on Jesus. The wrath of God didn't vanish. It was satisfied in the death of the Son of God. This is the cup of wrath that Jesus said, can I not drink that? But not my will, your will be done. Scripture is clear. The wages of sin is death. The wrath of God is revealed against all ungodliness. Because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. So God does not just look the other way when it comes to evil and sin and wickedness. He is indignant about it. Psalm 7, Psalm 7 says, God is a righteous judge and a God who feels indignation every day. If a man does not repent, God will wet his sword. But what happens if he does repent and he doesn't wet his sword? How can God be righteous and dismiss wrongdoing without dispensing justice? And the answer is, is that he doesn't dismiss anything ever. God can be just right here and the justifier of ungodly sinners like us because his wrath was aimed at Jesus Christ. In verse 9, remember, it says, if we confess he's faithful and just, God's justice should, be nervous, should make an unrepentant sinner nervous. We can rejoice in his justice because of what Christ did. Because of what Christ did. This is how God can be just and the justifier of you and me. This is not a bribe. This isn't pagan. This is not a bribe for a fickle, malevolent deity. This is the provision of God through God by his own initiative and his own willing substitutionary sacrifice. Listen to the words of John Stott one more time. He says, this is an appeasement of the wrath of God by the love of God through the gift of God. This is an appeasement of the wrath of God by the love of God through the gift of God. 
The initiative is not taken by us, nor even by Christ, but by God himself in sheer unmerited love. His wrath is averted, not by any external gift, but by his own self-giving to die the death of sinners. This means that he himself contrived by which to turn his own wrath away. He solves the problem for us. He is our consolation, our comfort, our solace. In the body of Jesus, God dealt with our sin. That's why you can confess it. It doesn't hold you down. It doesn't chain you up. It doesn't hold you back. The only thing being offered to you is freedom. He poured out his wrath that you and I deserved on Christ and anyone else who places faith in him. This is what it means when it says not only for us, but for the whole world. It means that there is no other way for someone to find this peace with God, this reconciliation with God. Christ's sacrifice is for anyone, anyone in the world that places their faith in him for all time, for all time, as long as time exists. Christ is truly all in all, and he alone accomplishes for us what we could never accomplish for ourselves. He makes fellowship with God possible. He purchases cleansing and forgiveness with his own blood. So walking in darkness keeps us from fellowship with the light, but then Jesus pays the cost, a cost that we couldn't even imagine, so that we don't have to walk in darkness, so that we can fellowship with the light and be in the place where true joy is found. Like, he's the one that initiates the solution and pays all the costs for it. You don't have to carry the burden of that. So, so let's reckon with a declaration that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. Let's hear and do the truth by the exhortation, walk in the light, walk in the light. Let's embrace wholeheartedly the application to confess our sins and let's receive wholeheartedly the consolation. Christ himself is the propitiation for our sin. Let's pray. <coughs> Heavenly Father, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. God, would you sink down deep into our hearts, the places that orient us, the places that um, our desires are, the places that control our lives, the places that our heart sit and direct um, our emotions and our thoughts and our friendships and our relationships. Would you sink down deeper the truth that you paid all the cost of this relationship? We don't have to wear chains. We don't have to be shackled. We can be free people. You paid for sins that we don't even know about and we'll die never knowing about. Would you sink down into our hearts and souls the beauty and the power of being cleansed of all unrighteousness? Man, no one in this room, no one in this room is gonna stand before anybody else on the last day. Anybody else. And you've called us your children. As many as, as have received you, you've made children of God. 
Would you increase our faith? Would you increase uh, like our view of you? Would we see you as that much bigger so that uh, other things in our lives, idols, pressure, peer pressure, other, other realities that try to pinch us and twist us up, those things lose weight. They lose power in our lives because we know what you've done and you've done it all the way, all the way to the bottom. It's not up to me whether I can find every single little place that I've messed up. Your blood covers it. So would you sink that down deeper for us so we live free, we confess with light shoulders because you've already paid the penalty. Would you do that today? Would you transform us, I ask in Jesus' name, amen.